The following message was given by Demetrius White on Sunday, June 2nd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. My name is Demetrius. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm not an absentee pastor. I don't stay at home on Sundays. I actually go to the 400 location. So, I mean, if you're wondering, this guy's a pastor. Does he ever come to church? I do come, I do come to church. So it's good to be here. Um, I'm, I'm glad to, uh, and I'm happy to have the uh, opportunity to preach to you this morning. Um, if you'd be so kind to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, and we'll be going from 31 through 39 this morning. Verse 31 says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angel, nor rulers, nor, pa- nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we come graciously to your throne boldly because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We come, Lord, asking you for a special blessing, Lord, that we may see you this morning, that we may see your son in the sufficiency of his work. Lord, we are slow to hear and slow to obey oftentimes, Lord, but give us grace. Allow your Holy Spirit to apply these truths to our hearts, Lord, where they need to be applied, where I can't even apply them, and open our eyes to behold wondrous things or wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The book of Romans is one of the greatest books of the Bible. Personally, it's my favorite book because of its rich theological content and what it tells us of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is called a manifesto of peace, for in it we see the terms of peace between God and man fulfilled in Christ. It has been called the Christian's declaration of independence, for Christ has established freedom from sin and his condemning power. And while this book is considered to be one of the greatest books of the Bible. The eighth chapter of Romans may be considered to be the heartbeat of the book. The great expositor James Montgomery Boyce says that this one chapter alone is considered to be the greatest chapter in the Bible. 
In this chapter, God gives us an abundant revelation of the gifts bestowed upon us from himself. It tells us that we have received a new standing. There is no condemnation to, the, to those who are in Christ. We have received a new law, which is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We have a new walk. The Christian walks by the dictates of the spirit and not according to the flesh. We have a new power whereby the Holy Spirit helps us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We have a new help, a new family, a new hope, and a new assurance. And it's relayed to us in this eighth chapter of Romans. Paul ties up everything for us in Romans 8, 31 through 39. This is the pinnacle. This is the point of truth concerning the entire chapter. This is Paul's hymnic response regarding the believer's salvation. It is his ode to joy. It is his magnum opus. It is his masterpiece concerning the eternal security of the believer. In these verses, Paul wants to put the hearts, souls, and minds of God's people to rest regarding their standing before the Father and give them a fixed confidence in their salvation. Paul is so rock solid. He is so sure that he places upon us one of the most prestigious titles ever mentioned in the Bible. It is so distinguished that it is only used one time in the Bible, and it is found in Romans 8.37. What is that title? We are more than conquerors. Every now and then we'll see an athlete, someone on TV at some awards show, quote this verse. They will say, you know, I'm more than a conqueror. You'll see a boxer have it on his boxing trunks. You'll see an athlete have it or a football player have it on his eye black when he's playing American football. <laughs> but I can assure you of this. This verse is not saying that you're more than a conqueror on some football field or on a track or on a basketball court or on your job. That is, to say that is to diminish the glory and majesty of this verse. This title, More Than Conqueror, has eternal implications. Just what is Paul trying to convey to us this morning? What is he trying to help us understand this morning by giving us this title? This morning, I want to help us understand this by the grace of God. And this morning, I have two points for you. I don't have my customary three points or four points. I just have two points. I'm sorry to disappoint you, okay? Just two points this morning. Christian, my hope is that these truths will shore up your hope in the quality of your salvation. In the quality of your salvation. To the unbeliever, I'm hoping that you would come to see the beauty of salvation, the salvation that God offers you. Our two points this morning are, number one, we are more than conquerors because God is for us, verses 31 through 34. We are more than conquerors because, number two, God's love, because of God's love towards us, in verses 35 through 39. 
Let us look at our first point this morning. We are more than conquerors because God is for us, verses 31 through 34. This phrase, more than conquerors, comes from the Greek word hypernikaio. We can simply translate it as saying we are more than hyper-conquerors. It simply means to overpower in victory, to be abundantly victorious and prevail mightily. In the context of Romans 8, 31 through 39, we are more than conquerors because we have received an eternally secure position before the Father because of the Father's work. This is a gift given to us by the Father, and it ensures that we will be victorious and prevail mightily against all that threatens our salvation. Not because of who you are, what you can do, what you have done, what you didn't do, but because of what the Father has done for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verses 31 through 30, in verses 31 through 34, Paul gives us the clear reasons as to why we will be abundantly victorious in salvation. And he tells us why we can rest in the promises of salvation through this one statement. I just said, God is for you. God is for you. Let that sink in. He does not hate us. He is not looking to punish or spew forth his wrath upon us. God is for us. He's for Robert Greene. He's for Raymond Goodlett. He's for Demetrius White. He's for everyone in this building. God is for you. God is your biggest advocate. And as such, he is on your side. How can you lose? How can your salvation be threatened if such a being as God is for you? I want you to notice what the text does not say. It does not say that God will be for you tomorrow. God will be for you on your good days, but on your bad days, God will leave. It does not say that he will only be for you in the future. The the text says that God is for you now. That begs the question, how is he for us? God is for our greater good. He is for our greatest good. What do I mean by greater good or greatest good? Notice this little statement in verse 31. It says, what shall we say to these things? These things refer to the actions God has taken in the past, what he is doing in the present, and what he will do in the future. And Raymond talked about that last week. God is in the business of conforming you to the image of Christ. Now, I'm going to say this, may offend you. I don't mind it. You can email me. I'm the pastor who doesn't mind emails. But I'm going to tell you because I love you. God is not an advocate for your best life now. You know who had their best life now in the Bible? Esau. The Bible says that God hated Esau And we get offended by that. But if you read the story of Esau, Esau had tremendous wealth. Esau had princes come from his line. Esau had tremendous influence. But you know what? God left him alone in all of his prosperity. God is not for your best life now, because if he were to give you your best life now, you would have your worst eternity later. God is for your conformity to Christ I've quoted this before in this church, Hebrews 5.8, that Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. Listen, do you think you're going to get out of this thing unscathed? 
You aren't. Do you think you're greater than your master? You aren't. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. God is not against us. He is for us. He's for our greatest good, which is conformity to Christ. And I want you to know this, that God is not only for our ultimate good, but God, consider who is for us. God. In the totality of his being, he is for us. When I say his being, I'm talking about his essence, his nature, his attributes, God in his triunity. God is, our great, God is for our greatest good, and he can ensure that our greatest good be manifested in time and eternity because of who he is. Consider God in his power. You know, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it says that we were dead in trespasses and sins that we were slaves of Satan and we walked according to the course of this world. Our lives were an endless manifestation of the lust of the eye, the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh. The Bible says that we were children of wrath in that same chapter. Romans 1.32 says that we were God-haters. John 3.36 says that the wrath of God abided upon us. And yet God, in his power, saved us, loved us so much that he drew us to himself. And he did not draw you, contrary to popular belief, he did not draw you to him kicking and screaming. 2 Corinthians 4 says, that, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest they should see the light of the glorious gospel of the truth of Jesus Christ. All God did when he exercised his sovereign power, is he opened your eyes. And then when you saw the most glorious being in the universe, Jesus Christ, you willingly came to him. God is for you in his power. God is for you in his mercy. Mercy has to do specifically with God's attitude of pity towards sinners who deserve his wrath. Notice in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, it says, but God so rich in mercy... God, God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. God is merciful. He's not only for you in his power, in his mercy, he is for us by his grace. His grace is his undeserved blessing bestowed upon us. He has mercy, but he also gives grace. Because if God were to look at our works and judge whether we would enter into the kingdom of heaven, none of us would make it. It must be by grace and grace alone because we deserved his condemnation. We deserved his wrath for, as R.C. Sproul said, committing cosmic treason against God. That is why it says in the second half of Ephesians 2.4, it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. God is not only for you in his power, mercy, grace, but he is for you in his triunity. The triune God in his persons is for you. In the one being of God, there are three persons who are co-equal and co-eternal. This one God in three persons is for you in all of their respective acts of redemption. The Father, before time, predestines you to be conformed to the image of Christ. The Father 
before the foundations of the world, etches your name in the Lamb's book of life. The Father, to ensure all of this will be fail-proof, sends His Son in time. And then the Son performs His work. He lives the life that you're supposed to live. He dies the death that you're supposed to die with your sin upon Him and the wrath of God upon Him, and He quenches the eternal wrath of God. That is an amazing feat. There are people in hell right now, day after day, month after month, week after week, they are swallowing the wrath of God, and none of them can look up to God and say, it is finished. Jesus Christ, in about three and a half hours, looked to His Father and said, it is finished. Talk about sufficient salvation. The Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son, they send the Holy Spirit, and He applies the work of redemption to our hearts. He's constantly reminding you of the glory of Jesus Christ. He is sent to glorify the Son. He is constantly showing you His beauty and His majesty. And as a result of the Word of God that He works into your life, He is sanctifying you. You may not be able to see it, but He is at work relentlessly at all times. And He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. I can assure you of that. God is for you in His power, in His mercy, in His grace, in His triunity. But dear ones, we struggle with this, don't we? We sin. We fall short. And you say, man, I, I, I've done it again. How could, how could God love me? You say to yourself, Demetrius, I think I've finally put the nail in the coffin this time. I've exhausted the grace of God this time. There's no way God, there, there's no way God could forgive me, man. I, I'm done. I know you're talking about this more than conqueror's thing and that you're relating that to eternal security. I know, you're, I know you're saying that, but man, you know, I know people too that this is not a reality in their life. I know a seminary professor, a theologian, first-ranked theologian, who left the Christian faith. No longer a Christian, Demetrius. I know a pastor. I mean, he made my toes curl when I said the word God or when he said the word God. I mean, he just made my toes curl. But now, that guy, he's living with his mistress. He wants nothing to do with faith. Let me tell you something. 1 John 2.19 they left us because they were not of us. God loses none of his sheep. I can assure you of that. Not because I'm some great person, but because of this. God loses none of his sheep. Well, you may say, well, Demetrius, that's good you got me there. What about, you know, I, I, I heard about these warnings in Hebrews, and, you know, they seem to imply that you could lose your salvation, seem to imply that you could let this thing go. Let me tell you what, the warnings in Hebrews have adverse effects upon the believer and the unbeliever. You ever see somebody spur a horse? The horse starts running, goes forward. That's what happens to believers. When they hear the warnings, they are alarmed. They are real warnings. But you know what they do? 
They let go of their works, their sufficiency. They run to Christ and they cling to him alone. They give up all hope in themselves and they place all of their hope in Christ. I was telling one of my friends, I've placed my eggs all in one basket. I don't have anywhere else to go. If Jesus Christ isn't enough, I'm not going to be saved. I will go to hell. If Jesus Christ is not enough, but guess what? He is enough. He is sufficient. Well, you know, Demetrius, okay, I I, I will consider that. But what about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Do you know what the apostles or who they were talking about? They were talking to the Pharisees. They were talking to men who were in a unique situation. A unique situation. They walked with Christ. They saw him. They were there when that man raised Lazarus from the dead. They heard him say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They knew the scriptures. They slept with the scriptures, man. They knew all of the promises of Christ coming, where he would be born, how he would die. And when they saw Jesus Christ at work, they looked at him, and you know what they said? He's working for the devil. They had no interest in Christ. The only interest they had was to indict him. They railed upon him. They made sure he was crucified, and they wanted to make sure that he stayed dead. And in the book of Acts, they were the great antagonists of the church. Let me tell you something. If you're sitting in this church right now, you still have some interest in Christ. You would not be in this church if you committed such a sin. You've asked all of the questions. Let me ask you a question. Who are you, O man, to doubt God? Who are you? When God has said he has provided you this sufficient salvation, yet you doubt him. Notice the Father's questions to us through Paul. He says, who shall bring a charge to God's elect? It is God who justifies, not you. You can't justify yourself. You're not good enough. But God sent his son. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was raised for our justification. It is because of what Jesus has done that you are justified. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. In other words, you didn't die for yourself. Jesus Christ died for your sins, paid for your sins, and they will not come up before the tribunal of heaven on judgment day. I can assure you of that, to condemn you. He is sufficient. So I ask you, who are you, O oh man? 
Do you know what you're saying to the king? Do you know what you're saying to his majesty? Would you bring the emperor of the universe to trial? My friends, it's insanity. It's madness. And we must repent of this sin. If I could imagine losing my salvation. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be honest with you. If I could lose my salvation, I would have lost it before I even got out of college or moved to Richmond. I would have lost it a long time ago. But my salvation is founded upon Christ. If I could imagine losing my salvation, this is what I would have to do. I would have to Go into a place where angels fear to tread, where angels cover their faces before God and cry, holy, holy, holy. I would have to take the Lamb's book of life from his hand. I would have to blot my name out of it, my name that he wrote in there from before the foundations of the world, Revelation 13, 8, Revelation 17, 8. I would have to look at Christ I would, as he seated at the right hand of the Father, and I would have to spit in his face and say, your word is not true, according to John 8, 28 through 29. The Father, he says, the Father has given me these sheep. I give them eternal life, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I would have to, as Jeremiah Burroughs once said, ungod God. I would have to strip him of his essence and every attribute residing in his being, particularly his immutability, his unchanging nature and will. God would have to take back Romans 11.29 that says his gifts and callings are, with, are irrevocable. Why? Because his gifts are derivatives of his nature. He gave you your salvation by grace. He will not, shall not, and cannot take it back. And I don't care if you don't like me this morning for saying this, but I'm going to say it because I love you and I'm going to say it. Rely on the grace of God and stop your wrestling. The reason that you're wrestling with salvation is because either you're depending on your works or you aren't saved at all. And all you must do is rest upon Jesus Christ and Christ alone and he will save you. He will not. Let, I'm going to say that. I'm going to get in front of the podium and say this. <laughs> Jesus will not cast you out if you come to him. I'm not saying that because I, I made it up. John 8 says it. Read it. Jesus is sufficient to save. Who are you, O oh man, that you should doubt God? Still not convinced? Paul has another one for you in verse 32. He says, you're still not convinced? Who shall condemn? But you're still not convinced? Let me tell you, God did the greatest thing for you. And if he did the greatest thing for you, he will save you. He says this, who shall, verse 32, who shall, who did not his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not 
also with him graciously give us all things. Dear friends, God made you a conqueror because of what he has done, not because of what you have done. Well, Demetrius, someone reminded me the other day of some sin that I committed years ago. My dad reminded me, my mom reminded me, my friends, my acquaintances reminded me, and I'm feeling a little bit condemned. Let me tell you what Paul tells you in verses 34 and 35. He says that you need to rest upon the past and present ministry of Jesus Christ. He says it is Jesus who died and was raised. Past verse 34, it is Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of God and he intercedes for you. Present verse 35, you know, in Hebrews 9, 24, it says that Jesus Christ is in heaven right now, seated, representing you. Even if Satan comes to God and says, hey, you know, well, Demetrius did this, he's sinful, he's this, he's that. he says, look. You see that man right there seated? He's seated there because he's purged his sins. He's seated there because he gave Demetrius his righteousness. Jesus Christ is your real advocate this morning. He's a real lawyer that has been appointed by the courts of heaven, the Father himself, to represent you in heaven. Well, Demetrius, if you're saying that we can't lose this thing, maybe I can live any way that I want. Let me tell you what, if you're thinking that way, you need to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Because 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this, that Jesus has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Those whom God justifies, he sanctifies. He gives them his spirit and he empowers them to live to the glory of God. Dear ones, Jesus Christ didn't come to this earth to make bad men better. He came to make dead men live. He came to make did men live? And I can assure you, I, I am telling you this, if I could plead with you to believe this, God is for you. He is for you in his power. He is for you in his mercy. He is for you in his triune nature. And I want to drive this home by this illustration this morning. I'm a big boxing fan. I'm a big boxing fan. I don't watch it like I used to. I just don't have the time. And my wife, you know, I said this when I was at the 400. She was like, amen, you know, because she's like, oh, this, she knows, she, when she said that, she's, I'm yelling and screaming downstairs. And if there's a bunch of guys downstairs with me, we all yelling and screaming. But I remember my main man, Bernard Hopkins. I remember Bernard Hopkins. I mean, Bernard Hopkins to me is one of the greatest middleweights to ever box. Some say Hagler, but I, I mean, I like, I like Hopkins because he was a tactician, man. He was like that comic book character, the taskmaster. I mean, he did everything right. And he finally got his chance to fight Tito Trinidad. He finally got it. Trinidad, 40 and no, 33 knockouts. I mean, Trinidad walked into the ring like he was a king, and he really was. He was knocking people through the ring. 
Bernard Hopkins told everybody that he was going to win that fight. And I told everybody, I said, Bernard Hopkins is going to win the fight. I mean, if I was a betting man, I would want a lot of money. Nobody believed Bernard Hopkins was going to win that fight. But Bernard Hopkins comes into the ring with Bowie Fisher, his trainer. They come into the ring. Bernard Hopkins has on an executioner's mask because they called him the executioner. That's how, I mean, people say that Bret Hart was the excellence of execution. That's not real. You know, the WWE is okay, it's entertaining, but it's fake. Bernard Hopkins was a real excellence of execution. Hopkins went into that ring. He starts off with a little jab. You know, it looks like he's not doing it. Little jab. Overhand right. You know, Tito's looking good. He's like, oh, is this not hurting me? Get, they get down to the later rounds. Bernard Hopkins, you can see Tito Trinidad look at his dad in the corner. He was like, man, I don't know how to beat this guy. This guy's killing me. Bell rings again. They go out. Tito Trinidad swallows a right hook from Bernard Hopkins. He's out. Bernard Hopkins on that day became a conqueror. Bernard Hopkins on that day, I mean, they, they said it. I, I told everybody he was the greatest middleweight, but they said it on that day. Bernard Hopkins the greatest middleweight to ever fight. Bernard Hopkins received prestige. And you know what else? Bernard Hopkins became a multimillionaire from that one fight. And he was a conqueror. But let me tell you something. Mrs. Hopkins. Little Hopkins. They didn't lift one finger. They didn't train one day. They didn't swing one punch against Tito Trinidad. They didn't knock him out. But because of what dad and husband did in the ring, they now have inherited everything that he has received by his work. And what I am saying to you this morning is that Jesus Christ has treaded the winepress of God's wrath alone for you. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your works to save you. Jesus Christ is telling you this morning that I have done everything to secure your salvation. Now rest and be more than a conqueror. That's what it means. It means that God has done everything for you and now you must rest in his work. Jesus Christ the Father has done great things for us, and it is sinful. I'm going to just call it what it is. It is sinful to doubt the sufficiency of the salvation He has delivered to you. Unbeliever, He's, he's offering you this. He's offering you a fixed salvation. Jesus Christ is we are more than conquerors because God is for us. Number two, we are more than conquerors because of God's love towards us. Verse, verses 35 through 39. Notice the beauty of God's love in verses 35 through 39. Paul is trying to bring peace to us. He wants us to be assured of God's love. 
He wants us to rest in it. And, you know, we, when we read these verses, we, we quickly read through them. We, we, we don't set at the fires of God's Word, and we don't meditate upon these great truths so that they can warm our hearts. You know, my daughter, Zoe, oldest one, we have a little tradition. We like to go outside every day, just about every day, I'll go out there and she'll follow me out there. I'll, I like to sit on the deck and enjoy the weather, you know. She'll come out and we'll listen to music together. Uh, she doesn't like my jazz and I don't like her music too much. But we, you know, we manage, you know, to, to toil and tussle through it all. And one day I decided, I said, look, look give me this thing. I'm going to turn on something I want to I watch. So I turned on this video called The Most Dreadful Things in the Universe. The Most Dreadful Things in the Universe. I thought that thing was interesting. I said, let me see what's going on here. I mean, this guy with this voice, you know, one of those horror movie voices. This black hole swallowed 15 million planets in one gulp. You know, I'm sitting there listening to this, and my daughter's like, why are you listening to this? This is what I told her. I said, you know, Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the handiworks of God. I said, sometimes I just want to look and see how amazing he is. That I may know how to worship him in the right way. She didn't say anything else. I finished looking at this video. And it talked about how big the universe was and how it kept expanding and going and all of these columns of galaxies. And, and I was just overwhelmed. I mean, my head was about to burst. And I ran in the house and my wife thought I was crazy. I said, what's going on? Can you believe that God loves us? This being that created all of this stuff, what are you talking about? You have to watch this video. <laughs> this being loves us. He came and he died for us. Dear ones, this is the same being that loves you. And Paul is trying to convince us of the characteristics of God's love. He says here in verses 35 through 37, what he's saying in a nutshell is that God's love is secure. It will never be moved. He points us to specific events, doesn't he? He says, you know, he talks about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness. These things come and go, but the love of God does not. A couple of weeks ago, during our family devotions, I asked my kids this question. How do you know God loves you? How do you know Zoe, Maddox, Aiden, how do you know that God loves you? Silence for a while. They just don't want to say the wrong answer, you know. I don't scold them or anything, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you can get the answer wrong. I mean, but one of them chimed in and said, Daddy, this is how I know God loves me. I know he loves me because of what he has done on the cross. Listen, when you're going through tribulation, distress, 
or persecution, if you do not believe that God loves you based upon what he has done on the cross through the person and works of Jesus Christ, you will not run to the throne of grace to receive grace in the time of need because you're not sure of the love of God because you're basing it on something else outside of yourself or in yourself. It must be rooted in the love of God. His love is secure because of the cross. The love of God is formidable. Verses 38 through 39, notice Paul lists some of the most powerful things that we will encounter. He talks about angels, whether they're good or bad. I mean, there's this one dude in, in Daniel chapter 10 who's called the Prince of Persia. I'm pre- I'm, I can imagine, you know, in my frail human self, he could probably swallow me whole. He's a bad dude. But although he's strong, although sin is strong, God's love and grace is greater. His love is formidable. You know, God just casts out demons with his finger. He creates something out of nothing by just using words. Is there anything too hard for God? His love cannot be thwarted. Verse 39, the love of God is eternally rooted. Does he say... Nothing shall separate us from the love of God because you attend Redemption Hill. You attend all three services of Redemption Hill. I still can't see how you guys come to the 830 service, but that's that's another story. But that's long. I mean, that's early, man. But does he say that you will never be separated from the love of God because you fast two times a day? No, he says nothing shall separate you from the love of God in who? Yourself? Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. How could your salvation fail? How could his love fail for you? I'm going to tell you this morning, if this is something that you wrestle with, stop. And rest. If you don't know Christ this morning, come to Him. He loves you. He died for you. And He will not cast you out. And can it be that I should gain an entrance in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain. For me, whom to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Father, we come to you in the name of our Lord and Savior. Once again, we ask you to apply these truths to our hearts that we may rest in our salvation. Stop resting in what we can do. Rest in Christ alone. Father, I pray that throughout the week you would echo these truths to our hearts and soothe our hearts and encourage us and comfort us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
In a few moments, we will partake of the elements of communion. As we do, I would like for us to meditate on the truths of God's love found in John 3.16, that he so loved us that he gave his only begotten son. Rest upon the fact that God has secured your salvation and that nothing or no one can steal it from you this morning. God's grace be with you. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Demetrius White given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.